I thank you kindly for firing up the podcast system. That's cast with me, podcast system. With me, lovey. And yes, that is my real name. Every episode, I tackle something new in the world of politics, pop culture, race, and the lack of relations. Be sure to subscribe and enjoy every shady moment. Be hashtag blessed, y'all. I'm going to talk about all the things that can lead up to explosive feelings many Black folks have. And I'm lucky that I didn't experience some of the horrors my brothers did because being a Black man has its own level of difficulties that I can't even begin to process. So when my friends called all of this week and asked, what can they do? First and foremost, I implore you to just listen. The anger you're seeing from Black and Brown folks isn't day one energy. You can't understand if you don't take the time to listen. This doesn't mean that you aren't thinking of a response. This doesn't mean that you're coming up with a solution. This literally means open your ears and listen. Heck, clearly Mitt Romney listened because he rolled out in full Mitt coiffed hair, white iron shirt, and blue matching tie, marching in a Black Lives Matter protest. Mitt, I'm a Republican, I'm a Mormon, I'm as a straight-laced as they come, Romney. He listened, and then he took action. I want to explain what it means to be angry and tired, because I've been both since I've been about eight years old. It's really rare that I share the racially charged moments I've experienced with my friends, classmates, and acquaintances, but I've come to realize that keeping these things to myself doesn't do anyone any good. So this is literally going to be me sharing all of the moments of being a young Black girl and Black woman in a very white world. The first story that comes to mind is um, what I like to call the Middlebury story. So my senior year at Choate, um, I remember we all got our letters dictating what schools we were going to. And, you know, we had our rejections and they had this annual occasion where you could burn your rejection letters. So everyone would show up on campus. All of the seniors would come with their rejection letters and it was a big bonfire and all emotions were high. And it's like, you know, you just get out that energy of, I got rejected from this school. I'm burning this letter. This is it. This is over. So I actually got into Middlebury, so I didn't have a Middlebury rejection letter to burn. But I had Williams. You know, I had to bring my Williams purple hat and shirt and all the other things that I was going to have to give up because I wasn't going to Williams where I really wanted to go at the time. And I thought, you know, I didn't get in. That was my own doing. Perhaps I should have worked harder or perhaps there were better candidates than me. But it was what it was. That was it. But then in that moment, I realized it wasn't it for some other people. As I stood by the bonfire, I remember a classmate of mine, and this was a kid who I was friendly with. We had never had any issues. He came up to me and with anger in his eyes, you know, I thought like, oh man, he needs a hug. Like he's really upset. Maybe he didn't get into any schools he wanted to. And he came straight to me and he looked me in my eye and he said, you took my place at Middlebury. You're the reason I'm not going, lovey. I stood there. I had no idea what to say in response, and I didn't say anything at all. All of a sudden, it was my fault that he hadn't gotten into the school of his dreams. He had dreamed about Middlebury for years. So that was a really hard day for me. What should have been 
sort of a celebratory end to our college process became me carrying the burden of someone else's hate and someone else's fear. I'll tell you another story. So when I was in middle school, I got a letter stating that I had test scores that would qualify me to enter this program called Prep for Prep 9. This program was an intensive program for New York City kids, and it required you going 14 months of academic programs while you also completed your regular schooling. So I'd be going to school six days a week, and I'd attend two summer sessions while also going away to boarding school during the summer for two weeks. I mean, listen, the program was hard. I can even say that as an adult that I probably would not want to repeat it. But I felt honored that I had been singled out to even apply. I went to my guidance counselor the next day after I got the letter and I talked to my parents. And the guidance counselor looked me in the eye and she said, why would you want to add so much stress and work to your life? You don't want to do that. It's a bunch of really smart white kids there and they'll just outdo you. You should just stay in New York City where it's going to be easier for you, lovey. This was supposed to be someone who I looked up to. This was supposed to be someone who encouraged me to do better. Instead, she was saying I wasn't worth it, I wasn't going to succeed, and I shouldn't try. I'll give you another story. So, mind you, none of these stories are in chronological order, but they're they're stories that stand out to me in such a way where they've had an impact on who I am and how I view people around me. So the next story is of the Exeter Run Club. So when I moved to Exeter, uh, New Hampshire, you know, I, I didn't know anyone, so I decided to join the run club. I was... I wouldn't call myself an avid runner, but I ran enough where socializing with people after running seemed like a good idea to meet folks. So I'd become acquainted with quite a few people on the team. And on Wednesday nights, we would go for these trail runs in the woods, which, by the way, was already enough of an issue for me coming from New York City. But we'd go on these runs in the woods. And then afterwards, we'd go out to a restaurant and have drinks and eat food. And two weeks in a row, we had gone to this restaurant in town where the waiter would go around the whole table and take everyone's order and somehow forget that I was there. The first time I ignored it, and I just thought, oh, they're really busy. They don't notice me sitting at the center of the table, you know, the one woman of color. So the second time it happened, I said something to the team, and I said, you know, this is ridiculous. I I feel like they're purposely ignoring me. I haven't even gotten a glass of water, guys. Immediately after saying that, someone on the team turned to me and said, don't go there. Don't make this a racial thing. That shut me down immediately. I looked around the room and realized I was alone. No one stood up for me. No one said, lovey, how are you feeling? No one asked any further questions. The conversation was closed. This gets a little more uh, painful to talk about, but... Another incident that I can think of is the uh, first time I went out, and maybe not the first time, but it was one of the times, one of many times actually, that I went out for dinner with my in-laws. And if you don't know, my in-laws are white. I am not. (laughs) So I went out for dinner with my in-laws and it was my in-laws and I think a cousin or two. It 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 was a large party of people. And so we're sitting at the restaurant And it's literally like the same thing that happened in Exeter. 
the waiter went around to every person, including the children. So the four-year-old got an order taken, and all of a sudden, they left. I sat at the table, and I looked around at everyone, and I said, did everyone else get their order taken? And they looked at me and said, oh, yeah. Well, I said, well, for some odd reason, they didn't take my order. And in those moments, I try my best not to make it, well, maybe this is a racial thing. Well, maybe this is a sexist thing. Well, there are other women there. So I try really hard not to make it about that. But when it happens over and over and over again, it's hard not to think that way. So the waiter came back and I tried to get his attention and he still wouldn't look at me and he left again. So the third time after he bought drinks to everyone else at the table, I said, hey, you know, I'm just letting you know I'm planning on eating tonight. And he immediately looked to my father-in-law to get approval before taking my order. I gave my order. I looked around the table and I waited for anyone to say something. I finally spoke up and said, well, isn't that just weird that the guy didn't take my order until the third visit? And immediately the response was, well, you know, the restaurant's really busy. They must be really busy. So in that moment, I feel like, again, my voice was not heard. My concerns not heard. Felt small among people who I trusted. Another incident that took place Two years ago, actually, when we moved to the town we currently live in, in Exeter, I used to be the MC for the Turkey Day Trot. So imagine, you know, on Thanksgiving Day, it's freezing out, and there are runners, and there's an MC who's getting everybody hyped, so I'm like the hype man. So I'm getting everybody excited about the race, and this year we have close to six, 700 people running it. So this is a huge, huge event. And I can recall that the... Uh, Speakers weren't working for some odd reason, so the national anthem couldn't be played. And everyone's like freaking out. It's like, we can't run until we play the national anthem. What are we going to do? What are we going to do? So they look to me and the, the head of the race committee says, Lovey, can you sing the national anthem for us on the bullhorn? And I laughed and I'm like, are you kidding? I'm not a singer. You know, I pretend to sing in my car and in the shower, but I'm I'm not a... 700 person audience, two degrees below zero singer. But they asked and I said, you know what? Okay, fine. I can, I can do this for the team. I will take one for the team. And if you know me, then you know that I can have a touch of the sarcasm periodically. So I took the bullhorn and I got in front of the audience and I said, all right, guys, this is going to be rough. I don't particularly want to do this, but here we go. And I led the national anthem and everyone joined in and we all laughed and we cheered right before the gun went off for the start of the race. Here I thought I had done something really great. I found out months later that when the race was discussed and broken down and, you know, talked about the goods and the bads, that the moment that I had came up, apparently someone had complained about me saying, I don't want to do this. The message was taken that because I was a black woman saying that I did not want to sing the national anthem, I must be anti-patriotic. I must be another Colin Kaepernick. I was insulting the American way. So I found out later that they had considered not asking me to come back 
to do the emceeing for the following year. I can't lie, my feelings were extremely hurt. No one had thought to ask me, well, how do you feel, lovey? No one thought that the obvious of not wanting to sing the national anthem in front of 700 people on a very cold day using a bullhorn might be the reason that I didn't want to sing that at that moment. But because everyone was afraid that this Black woman was insulting the American way, they secretly complained. So it's moments like that that make me wonder, when people say they're my friends, when people say they know me, and by people I mean white people predominantly, I hesitate. Because when I let my guard down and I show who I really am, I get called out for it, for being too Black, too sensitive, too loud, just too much. There's another story that I remember that I wanted to share, and it's silly, but in retrospect, it really put a damper on the start to my experience in high school at Choke. It was either the first or second day of orientation. And imagine, you know, awkward, I mean, like really awkward preteen teenagers coming onto campus, leaving their parents and having to come together for their first experience away from home. So I remember meeting my classmates and, you know, I was like, okay, I have to be cool, lovey, like be cool, lovey, don't make a scene, don't be too giddy, don't be too calm, like just be normal, whatever normal is, just be that, try to be that. So I tried really hard to be normal, which made me awkward. (laughs) And one of my classmates, who clearly had never met a black person in his entire life, he came right up to me as we sat together in a group circle on the ground and he goes, lovey, right? And I said, yeah. He said, you're from New York, right? And I said, yeah, I was born in Brooklyn, but you know, the last four years I've been living in Queens. And he says, do you have a beeper? And my face sort of contorted and I tilted my head and I said, wait, a beeper? Dude, I'm, I'm 12. What? No, I don't have a beeper. He was like, oh, well, I assumed that everybody, you know, from New York like you had a beeper and maybe sold drugs. What? And I waited for him to laugh as if like this was like a joke, right? And I looked around the circle at everyone else waiting for the punchline. And that was it. He was serious. He really thought, based on what he had seen on TV and movies, that every black kid coming from New York must have a beeper and must also sell drugs on the side. He didn't say anything about the actual choke kids who were really wealthy, who were caught selling and distributing cocaine years ago, but that's neither here nor there. It, of course, must be the kids coming from New York who were the big drug dealers. Another story. I know I'm telling so many stories, right? But I kid you not, I could go on probably for hours. I won't, but I probably could go on for hours. This is what I call my Bowden story. She kind of breaks my heart because this was from a family member. I won't name names. But we were all together as a family, and this was my marital family, I'll say, before we got married. And it was a table around 10 people, and we're sitting at an Italian restaurant in the North End, very Boston. And the conversation is pretty generic, like, oh, what are we going to have for breakfast tomorrow? Oh, what did you guys do over spring break? Oh, lovey, I bet you got into Bowdoin because you're black. I'm sorry? I asked her to repeat it. She said, well, I mean, you got into Bowdoin because you're black, right? 
yet again, I sat staring, waiting for the, you know, comedic band to roll out with the, ha ha, we got you. It didn't happen. And when I brought it up later and said, well, what the hell was that? And why didn't anybody say anything? I was told, well, you know, she didn't really mean it. And we don't like to upset her because she's really sensitive. And I said, but what about me? That was one of the most embarrassing experiences of my life. You assume that I got into Bowdoin because I'm black. It had nothing to do with the fact that I don't know when to choke. Nothing to do with the fact that I maybe got the highest award graduating. No. Obviously, it's because I'm black. And so it's one thing for me to deal with these instances and, and microaggressions coming towards me, but it's another to be a mother. And so unfortunately, I had to learn the hard way. And I knew it was coming, but I wasn't ready for it. The day that my son told me that he had been called the N-word, he was in second grade, and to be honest with you, I didn't find out about it until three or four months after it had happened. He came to us in passing and was telling us a story about something and said, oh yeah, that's like that time that that kid called me the N-word. My heart dropped. It broke. I said, what are you talking about, Eli? What do you mean? He said, oh, well, we were at the playground and you know, we were playing soccer and my friend got upset with me and he just called me a dumb N. And I said, are you okay? What? Why didn't you tell me? And he said, oh, I didn't think anything of it, you know. And that was it. And so I said, well, tell me the name of this kid. Tell me the name of who else was there. So long story short, I found out what other adults were there, what other kids were there. And I brought it to the principal. And I said to him, I said, I'm finding this out three or four months later that this happened, that there were other adults present, that there were kids who heard it. Why didn't anyone tell me? Why didn't anyone let me protect my child? And he said to me, he was like, well, are you sure it took place on school property? Because I just need to make sure of that first. That was his first concern, that it took place on school property. Had it not taken place on school property, then there's nothing he could do, even though it dealt with students at his school, children at his school, adults associated with his school. So lesson learned. And I subsequently went back to the school after, you know, nearly avoiding setting fires around the place, but that's neither here nor there. So I went back to the school and I said, okay, what are we going to do about this? Because clearly this is not what what should be the norm and and people need to understand why it's important to inform parents and to educate other kids and to educate other adults at the school that this is not acceptable and i said to him i was like when was the last time you guys updated the reading materials for your faculty and and students and his response was well we have black history month and there was my answer they hadn't it had never been considered why they should upgrade or change or include anything that represented the students who were now in their school. So some of these stories aren't as, you know, traumatic as others, but I'll tell you the story that I like to call the um, upscale dining slash pretty woman tale. So this literally happened a month before COVID. It was my brother's birthday 
and I decided to take him out to a nice dinner in Cambridge. And so I said, okay, let's get dressed up. And actually what's funny is Kyle also met us at the restaurant afterwards. So I said, you know, get dressed up, we'll go out and look nice and be fancy. Cause you know, we like being fancy. We like pinkies up. So we go to this restaurant, um, I'll name it Harvest. And we go to Harvest to have this really nice dinner we have reservations. And immediately when we walk in, they tell us, oh, um, we just want to let you know that there's a table seating right after you. So make sure you, you know, finish t- in a timely fashion. I'm like, geez, we have reservations. You're going to rush us out before we even get seated. And I remember asking her because I'm a little neurotic like this. I said, please just make sure that we're not seated anywhere near the doorway because I hate being cold. So she looked at me and she says, sure. So when they brought us to our table, I was literally in front of the doors. So every time it opened, you know, a big draft came in. I said, you know what, lovey, don't worry about this. It's your brother's birthday. Keep it positive. Keep it happy. And our waiter came by and he's taking our order. And, you know, who knows what people think when they see the two of us together, but he's taking our order. And I remember ordering, I was like, let me get the deconstructed Caesar salad, please. And he writes down all the orders. And then he looks at me and he's like, I just want to let you know that the deconstructed Caesar salad is not like the typical one you would probably eat. But if you want like a basic one, a regular one, I can have the chef make that for you. And I looked at him and I'm like, so you're telling me that the menu item that clearly states deconstructed, that clearly describes what it means and what's entailed in the salad, you think I can't comprehend that? Okay. So I say, no, 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 I'm fine. I'm fine. We're going with the salad. And Jacob, of course, orders like the seafood platter extravaganza. And when he comes back, it's literally like we are two-year-olds that he's trying to explain the most basic things to. He's like, let me show you guys here. These are the oysters. That's that raw seafood that you go in the ocean. I'm like, can you stop talking to us like we don't know shit? And he got offended. And I was like, listen, we're paying a lot of money to eat here. I don't need you to talk down to us. We kind of know what the basics are. Even after saying that, he continued to speak down to us to the point where we ended up leaving the restaurant because it was so uncomfortable. Another story, and I, you know, I hate to say this, but these are all family and friends. These are all people I know really well. So I had invited people to come to visit my family's house in Queens. You know, this is the home I grew up in. This is where I was raised. And it's a white family. And I remember as they were pulling to park in front of the house, the windows roll down and I hear one of the young women say, is it safe for us to come out? Will we be safe in this neighborhood? I immediately wanted to say, no, you won't, because now I'm going to handle you myself. But I couldn't. So I said, yes, it's safe. I grew up here. I would never let anything happen to you. It's friggin', you know, Queens. There's nothing going on. Okay, well, I was just really nervous. To follow along that, I remember one summer, we had taken the kids to Cape Cod, or Martha's Vineyard, excuse me. We had taken them to the vineyard. Um, And we came home and I said, well, let's go and visit my mom and dad in Queens. And so we took the kids there. So we had two photos from the same span of a vacation. The first set were of the kids on the vineyard frolicking it up and, you know, fancy beaches and looking out for Obama. And the second were the kids playing in the backyard, the backyard that I grew up in, the backyard that I played in, the backyard that was my happy place as a kid. 
And I posted these on Facebook, just as happy as can be to show off like my children's worlds and how they all come together. And someone in not my side of the family, but my husband's side of the family commented and said, oh, wow, I'm impressed to see how happy those kids look even playing in that ghetto backyard. Wow. Like for real. Wow. 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 The last little story I'll tell you is, is it's like the combination of being a woman and being a black woman, right? So in college, I was planning on being an economics minor, if not a major. I really loved the study of economics. You know, it, it did something for me. I, who knows why, but I, I really loved it. And I remember sitting in class and I was so enthusiastic and excited every class. Like the teacher would assign reading and worksheets and all that other stuff. And every class I would sit in the front and I would raise my hand to answer. Every class I was participating. And I remember the first group project we had and we're sitting in a group of four and one of the guys in my group looks at me after about 30 minutes of us working together and he's like, man, you're cooler than I thought you were. And I'm like, what do you mean? He's like, I thought you were such a bitch. And I said, what? What What do you mean? Why would you say that? He's like, well, you're always raising your hand and stuff and no one answers to questions. I was like, dude, we're in college. What what else are we supposed to be doing? He was so intimidated by the fact that I didn't fear speaking out, whether it was because I was a woman, whether it was because I was a black woman, I still don't know, but I know that I made him uncomfortable. I'm, I threatened his success, his authority, and he felt comfortable enough to tell me that. Not everyone is bad. <laughs> I will say not everyone is bad. Not every story is bad. But those have been some of the ones I've remembered very distinctly. I will leave with a positive story because I think it's important to know. So Grandpa Dan. Grandpa Dan is my husband's grandfather who passed away a few years ago and was probably the one of the greatest men I've ever come across who was not my father. I mean, he was someone, and you know, at his age and, and the life that he had lived and what he had gone through, you would think he's the exact person who would come across as racist and judgmental and sexist, but he wasn't. He was a real listener. And, I, and I'm stressing that because his listening skills and his skills for empathy and sympathy is what made him the amazing person that he was. He would call me every Sunday and he'd ask, how are you doing, lovey? And he would sit in silence and let me talk on and on and on about how I was doing and get things off my chest before saying anything. He rarely had suggestions unless I asked for them. He listened. He cared. He never once made me feel different for being the only Black person in his home. He never once made me feel insecure. He always made sure that I felt like more than. And so like Grandpa Dan, I see a lot of you really stepping up. I see a lot of you going to marches without looking for praise or approval. You know, and I really respect that. Every time these moments and incidents took place, I would plant another seed in me of disappointment and distrust. These were supposed to be my friends, my peers, classmates, and even family. They knew me. Now imagine this happening all the time with strangers, potential employers, police officers. Your trust in humanity begins to diminish. Now ask yourself this. 
Are you currently feeling empathetic, sympathetic, confused, defensive, or even angry? That'll help you figure out how far you need to go to purge your innate racist tendencies. Hey, listen, most people have them. It's those that want to keep and justify them that are the problem. All I ask is that you listen before coming up with a reason or justification for poor behavior. If your friend says something is racist or seems racist, listen to them. Believe them. This isn't the first time they are experiencing it. My last comment is really a thank you. Thank you to all people who have opened their eyes and are willing to change. Thank you for standing up when I know it exposes you in a way you aren't used to. Thank you. You are seen, you are heard, and you are appreciated. Much love. Thank you to our host, Clovercrest Media Group, Kev from BK for our visual arts, and the fire intro song, Filthy, by TVP Records. Cast system.